1: who makes you uncomfortable, every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be.
0: Hey guys, welcome to the n podcast. I am guessing that many of you are longtime listeners and there's a good chance that there's a fair bit of you that are new, probably because of the topic, maybe this was shared to you by a long time listener. And Sons is a platform for young men who are seeking initiation and chasing after God in this chaotic moment in time. So their conversations are for the twenties and thirties, but we found that they impact generations and and women and you know, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. Today's conversation is with Dr. Dan Allender, who for our longtime listeners will not be a unfamiliar voice, but for those of you who are new, Dan is a brilliant mind out in Washington who has worked extensively in trauma and therapy and counseling for decades now. And we got to pick his brain a little bit by sharing some of our story on depression and suicide and have this feel like a bit of live fire. So welcome. I'm Sam and I'm Blaine
1: and I'm Dan and I am so grateful to be with two dear friends.
0: Well, Dan, it's always a joy to be with you and always a little bit of uh, playing minesweeper, I think, until we we click on on the mine and blow ourselves up and end up somewhere that you can uh, take us that we wouldn't have gone ourselves. So I'm excited for this conversation and also a little bit nervous.
1: Let's just say again, uh, with both of your minds and hearts, uh, the terrain is always complex, but
0: bears a beauty that really does take your breath away. Well, oh, thank you. I don't know if we'll keep that or not, but I, I do like the, the embrace verbally as we, as we begin. So when I think of depression and my journey... I find myself really wanting to jump into my mid-teens. I think around 15 or 16, I began to really feel things strongly. And it felt like too strongly. And yet, that's what everybody told me my hormones were going to be doing. I was going to be just this, I don't know... uh, radio dialed in an old fashioned car and I'm going to be spun back and forth out of my control between different stations and everything's going to be loud. And And, and that was true. I did feel some days like a crazy person and other days like I needed to uh, just hide from everyone. But what really what really begins my story is I remember um, distinctly going into coffee shops because that was all I really could afford as a high schooler, and buying a cup of coffee, and I would, I would see what I thought was the pain in the eyes of the person that was taking my order, and it would almost overwhelm me. The level of grief, the the level of of experiencing their their weight, and it sort of amplifying my own um, was intense, and I remember being baffled by other classmates seeming to to like make decisions that seemed healthy, that seemed good, that seemed like uh, people in the track team having a lot of dedication to getting outside, getting sunlight. And, and I was not able to do that. I found myself sort of feeling things really strongly and also wanting to to hide from what was a pretty intense high school experience. It felt very unsafe. It felt um, like there was a lot of bullying and ridicule and video games were my safe place. I would come home from high school and I would be really, really good at playing Xbox. And I could just turn off the noise for a little while. And it wasn't until i walked through these years with, with really with no um, input, just just feeling a lot and feeling a difficulty in motivation and, and feeling almost like I was living with a cloud layer. But I, I didn't know... I sort of assumed everybody had that and, and some people were more skilled at dealing with it than I was. Um, and I came home from college in between my freshman and sophomore year and, and finally... I don't know had like enough of trying to muscle my way through it or enough curiosity where I just named it to my mom one day I'm like I'm just this is my experience and it's really hard and I feel like I can be cheerful I can be happy I'm I'm not experiencing a desire to commit self-harm but I'm really intrigued by people who are because it there feels like there's an honesty there um and it was my mom she goes well you know, depression kind of does run in the family and you are naming some things of depression and, and that can sometimes be hereditary. And so you might want to go check out the, the school has a counselor and they've got a medical clinic and you should go have those conversations. And I remember I felt like I just got slapped in the face. I, I felt actually really offended. I'm like, how am I 18, 19 and just hearing about this now? yet you have done me some great disservice where I have been trying to wrestle through this and it was dismissed as teenage hormones and puberty. And instead, there's this whole other category that I have been wrestling with and, and nobody told me that it was a chess piece on the board. I, I've been losing a game because I didn't know that that was a queen and it was even here and it, it can do what? All I have are pawns and they're getting taken out by this thing. And I remember defending myself to... People in college who they would be mocking. It wasn't even myself. It was uh, mocking people who were experiencing depression or mocking people who were committing self harm, and that they were really seeking attention. And though I wasn't doing those things, I, I remember pushing really strongly in defense of those people, going, "No, I think they're being honest. I think, I think you don't get to just dismiss what they're trying to show and do um, because it makes you uncomfortable because you don't understand it." I actually am deeply acquainted with this and I don't know why yet. So I'll pause there as I am on, I've, I've walked through some of my high school. That's where my story kind of begins with this, this chaos. Um, and eventually I'll, I'll pick it up in my twenties here in a minute, but Dan want to give you the opportunity to respond to my experience in those early years.
1: Yeah, and uh, again, it's an obvious beginning, but just to say thank you. uh, You've already put a lot of words to realities that are both very common for most people, but also has a uniqueness. And if I can just start with, when, when were you aware of having both an allure and intrigue, but also a defense of the underdog?
0: Early, really early. I mean... Yeah, those, those preteen years, probably. It, it felt like that's, that's when I was on their side. I was their advocate, and I, I instinctually knew something of of their experience without having yeah. lived it.
1: And, and and again, I know we're in a podcast, but what, what do you think prompted that alignment
0: with underdogs? I think something in me resonated with it. I think something of their experience, I said that you are me. You have grasped something about my experience. And I remember watching the film. Um, this was a little bit later in college, probably junior year. Um, the movie is Bella. I don't know if you've seen it, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. I am still floored to this day by that film. For those of you who haven't watched it, um, the opening scene, uh if, Really talented soccer player is driving with his manager, um, and a little girl runs out in the street, and he hits her with his car and and kills her unintentionally, and then it jumps forward into the story and begins following a young woman and him again, and the grief, and the weight, oh, like on his face, it was too honest. It was too it resonated so strongly. I remember I literally and and you were there, so you know, I ran, ran from the house, ran down the street weeping because something of it like had had just touched the nerve. I was like, yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well again, this will sound a little academic, but the capacity for grief is so tied to our capacity to empathetically enter the world of another. And in some ways, uh, the human heart is meant to bear despair. And I, I don't think that gets talked a lot about. So your sense is that much of your story and your family's story couldn't be told in a context for you to be able to own what your body was suffering because it it to some degree got dismissed as mere adolescent bipolarity, the up and down and the up and down. but you've always had a scent for facades for in one sense, the interplay between the false presence and injustice.
2: Is that a fair way of putting it? Mm. Yeah, I, I would say so. And can I ask a question before you continue on? You just said that the human heart is meant in some way to bear despair. What the heck do you mean?
1: Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not in Eden, and I'm meant to be. And I'm meant to be as he is. I will one day see him and be as he is. So even joy, this is just hard to bear, but even joy opens our heart to a new level of despair. So the more we experience something really good, it only allures us to what is the good the beautiful that which is fully true uh and so the dilemma is joy opens our heart to feel at new levels what we do have and what we don't so in that sense if we can own that that uh, again the the complexity of your brother's life but he is not fond of facades and is brilliant at sniffing out where something's just not true. Well, but that leaves you in so many ways not able to to hold how much untruth there is in every person, every system, every organization, every family. It doesn't matter how good it is. At some level, none of us are fond of reality, and therefore there is something of a haze, a gaze away from what we just Don't want to face. But as well, you know, Sam, I know a bit about you and you are ferocious against injustice. And so, between that prophetic stance of exposing and longing for righteousness, that, again, I'm not going to deny the biological reality of depression in your family that you put words to. And it's always a you know, it, it's big. I mean, the biological factor is freaking big, but there's always more. Mm-hmm. There's always more. And the more is to bear empathetically the sorrow in the eyes of others and to not have language or at that moment, a community that can come alongside and say, heaven, yes, that's indeed what a good heart is going to suffer, created for you an even deeper sense of isolation. And depression always cuts us off. So, you know, there's isolation there anyway in teenage years, to not have language and a community around you. And I mean, not just your family, but friendships, church, school, to be able to honor that. And where is it ever honored? Jeez. Uh, Maybe the Psalms, but
0: hardly ever anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're naming very true aspects of my personality, Dan, that feel like I I know I'm not alone in this this disposition, and yet it feels a little bit like you're reading my mail. So I'm going to stop forwarding it to you now. Well, let me just say it again. Like, I can't be around
1: you for decades and not have... A sufficient taste of of how much you would like to pretend that you do not feel phenomenally deeply, yet uh, your heart sensitivity to the weight of living in a fallen world, not just is prone to depression, but demands that you enter into, in some sense, the glory of what despair has called
0: you to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're naming some of the tension that I began to feel. So when I left high school, um, I I was internally pouring the gasoline on all the friendship bridges in those last few weeks and lighting the match in the ceremony. And I, my friends were shocked and hurt, and years later would reach out and be like, what happened? You didn't even tell us you when you were getting married. And there was something in me that was like, well, we were never close because all you wanted was this other thing. And, and, I, and I actually didn't feel known or seen or carried by you. So it was as easy as dropping my car keys to walk away from whatever the hell this was. And I remember somebody finally cluing me in. Um, there was a couple of guys in college who like, I just couldn't stand. And they were boisterous. They were super funny. They were well-liked. And I, I just... I always assumed it was like my cat-like personality. They didn't like the big golden retriever type personality, folks. So this guy walks by our table. He does his routine, and he goes on and and somebody just offhandedly commented, man he's carrying a lot, and it really is it's the it's the people who are the the funniest and the loudest, they're often the most sad. And something in like I hadn't hadn't had that thought yet. I'm like, oh, oh, this is why I have such a hard time with you because you're not being honest. You aren't actually, you, you've left me and people like me behind and you found a different tool that is working or you think is working for you. And that's, what's driving me so absolutely crazy about your personality is that I think you are feeling some similar things, but you're handling it in such a foreign way that I'm not able to, that I can't even be in the same room as you. And so I, the, these stories are coming back as you, Dan was what you're naming of that. I need some honesty. And as I, so back into my story of college in those years, um, I reached out to the college counselor and, and medical department because of my mom's suggestion and was kind of just given the, uh, the oversimplification of the complexity of depression There's no um, part of the mind we can go scan. There's not the depression gland in your throat that we can be like, oh yeah, that's overactive and we're gonna give you this and it's gonna do this. It's all sort of, let's throw these chemicals at you and see if you respond well. And since it runs in your family, there's a good likelihood. So here you go and here's your counselor because we really recommend um, accompanying, pairing these things together. And my experience of depression went like through the roof. As I got, I, I felt more isolated. My therapist I saw one time was horrible and massively dismissed me. Um, in this case, because of, he had knew my father and was like, "Oh yeah, boot camps, are awesome." And seems like you're really well equipped to handle this. And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to talk to you again." And on the other hand, because these these chemicals, these drugs, they they just cranked the volume up to a hundred. I already felt like I'd been all over the place, but instead now I felt everything way more intensely. Before I found a kind of balance with the dosage. Which meant that depression wasn't just, oh, I can't feel happiness or sadness. I'm sort of stuck in this malaise, though that was sometimes the case. In other cases, I felt fragile. I felt like I could just be kicked up to that bipolar thing that you were naming of. I'm I'm experiencing massive joy and freneticism and like, let's go on a bike ride in the fog and we're going to bike down to the beach in the middle of the night. No, let's not bring a light. If we get hit by a car, that actually doesn't sound too bad. So like, let's go. And then the next day, feeling so low from someone else's story, able to enter it so deeply that actually people became, for a long time, people were um, dangerous because of what they could pull me into. Because if I would sit with them and hear their legitimate pains and griefs, they'd pull me under and be like, me trying to save a drowning person and I don't know how to swim that well. Like we're both going down. So it's actually much safer for me, though I'm sorry to leave you on your own. I, I'm i not gonna go there. I can't. And I'm gonna go there with a select few. I'm gonna make my world really small. And that's been my story ever since. Like I, I go really, really deep with a few and that gets sort of chalked up as a personality type. But it, it is also strongly connected to this deep feeling, don't drown me, um, survival that I've learned, and I became the token friend in the in my group who was like, "Oh, he's our guy with like the mental problem." <laughs> like the college did like token a mental mental. <laughs> mental health awareness group, and like everybody would like pivot on the bleachers and like look at me, <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, I know. You guys all know that I'm on like happy I'm pills, the poster boy." Right, and yeah. I'm still not getting to class. I'm still not knocking this out of the park. And when I finally felt like some balance. There was a part of me that was like are you kidding? The rest of you haven't been living under a fog this whole time. You've been cheating. This is not okay. How, that's and I I felt like I wanted to go back and like hold high school Sam and say like they are cheating a little bit and it, it is an extra hurdle for you to to say yes to things and to get out the door and that's okay. You're going to you're going to find some answers but college for me then became like oh i i full on embraced the identity for a season like it was if i was the token guy with the mental problems i was like yeah great i'm the man i'm i'm the guy with depression i am depressed and i would much rather go smoke cigarettes on the beach cuz that sounds awesome and I, and I found like i want to fully enter into this rather than pretend like it's not happening. And so it would be a hard evening. I I became the guy who, rather than sit in my room and and watch something else on my laptop, it'd be like, grab a friend that I trust, you know, one of the two of them, and we're going down to the beach, and we're smoking, and we're going to talk about this, because this is, this way maybe my emotions will be like this cigarette. Maybe I can like burn them, they'll be hot, they'll be bright, and it'll be short. And it won't be this slow thing in the back of my mind. And... I developed quite the reputation around that for a few years, and and it took a while before I began to separate my identity from my diagnosis. That 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 was a later revelation that happened late in my twenties, that I was beginning to able to to go, oh, this is a this is a battle, not a verdict. But again, I want to now pause and and create space for you guys to respond to that next chapter
1: well, in part
0: exposure,
1: without grief, almost inevitably moves towards some form of cynicism. And as good as you were at cynicism, the dilemma is it's at war with this very tender part of you that feels on behalf of others you know so in some sense if i can put it bluntly your sincerity eventually eclipsed your capacity for cynicism and that is so sweet and the agony of the birthing of of of, of coming to a point of going cynicism is just cheap despair uh, it it's it 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 bears no it does it bears no courage, honor or risk. Uh, but as a default structure, man, it makes sense to me given the world. Um but the reality is your your regard for truth to be true to and true for, which is uh, two different prepositions. True to But true for others, you know, in one sense, required of you to not lose the capacity to dream and want engagement, and I think that's you know such a deep embedded reality by creation, but as well within that sphere of you just couldn't escape, not just your body and yourself, but escape something of that allure to care an allure for care. And uh, that won, at least it won as you began to move into relationship with a young woman who was not going to endure a form of solipsistic cynicism, nor uh, a level of denial. So uh, love, love was being birthed
2: even in the midst of A lot of darkness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The girl comes along who doesn't buy it and who understood that underneath intense cynicism and intentional prickliness was incredible tenderness and her beginning to refuse the cynicism and relate to the tenderness Mm -hmm. created an opportunity. I feel like that at least has to be a 50-50 divide among the audience because like, I want to talk to guys who have my preferred survival strategy and the ways that it made it really complicated for a long time to relate to the experience that you're talking about. Because I remember high school. I remember the Bella night. Mm -hmm. I remember college. I remember not getting it and not knowing why I wasn't getting it and I remember in our relationship, y- you pointing to there are things that you're not willing to name and acknowledge. And me trying to relate to you going, I don't see what you're talking about. And even as I hear these stories again, I'm like, oh, well, it makes sense now with, we've shared maybe in other places, but that over time, my response to stress needs there to be very hard black and whites in reality, Mm. needs there to be solutions, needs there to be a right thing to do. And so some of these areas that are like uh, sitting with suffering, one of the reasons that I didn't like it so much is that it challenged something that I felt like kept me alive for a long time, which was like, but there, there's a thing to do. And reality is not like that. And I don't like people who want to hang out on the Holy Saturday. And some of those people, I think that I stand by my response being legitimate, being uh, you are refusing to embrace the humility that's necessary mm. to pass into resurrection. But that's not the majority of the people that I intera- interacted with. And One of the things that's interesting as this conversation keeps going is that all of my intimate experiences with suicide are people who have my bent. Uh, And I know that it cuts both ways, but to go, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of some of the men listening. I'm thinking of people who are friends to deeply empathetic people. And to go, I know that some of you, if you are like me for the majority of my 20s, cannot get it. Mm. Probably because to a certain extent, you've made choices to stay alive. You have a survival strategy about pain in particular. That's not, let's push into this and hold this. It's, let's fix as much of this as possible. Solve it or get the
0: hell away from it. Exactly.
2: And when it becomes unfixable, pull out.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And and wonder why you feel, wonder why I feel so exhausted.
0: Yeah. Do you want to respond to that? Anything in there, Dan? Because I also have a question birthed from this.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a sense, Blaine, in which you've had a, a, a kind of epistemological grounding and certainty that your brother has not. And yet, What I would say is you also have a fluidity that belies the black and whiteness, meaning you can jump off of very tall structures and you can land and land in a way that a lot of people would literally be with broken bones. So, you know, you're owning a more black and white, but what a also say is that yeah, it's more like you have the ability to ground yourself over vast expanses. And in that, you know, what do you do with the fact that in some ways you're more bipolar than your brother?
2: He likes saying incendiary things, but don't be triggered. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always uh, open to sympathetic readings of myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. To really respond to go, I appreciate that you're pointing to that the root of these things is in fact glory, not sin or brokenness. And so that I would say, yes, the precise phrase epistemological grounding, you know, being a hardcore critical realist who loves the brute facticity of reality (laughs) is like
1: Uh, to use Heidegger.
2: It is meant to be a positive thing. Now, one of the ways it gets mixed up is when there are not holding places Mm -hmm. for suffering that does not have answers yet. And when there's frustration for people who can't be better right now. Mm -hmm. And without the ability to do that, in my experience, being an intense realist, let's fix this, lends itself exactly as swiftly to cynicism and despair, as does being deeply empathetic without any community or orientation or direction or uh, fathers or, you know, anything else Mm -hmm. in its extreme form and in a form without some help understanding the nuances of suffering. It is exactly as dangerous A default. Yeah. And as beautiful in
1: that you're going to engage uh, the issue of facades and unrighteousness, injustice in a different way. But again, you land. You land in ways that are peculiar. Would that be a fair way of putting it?
2: I'll take peculiar.
1: (laughs) Meaning people can't jump from the places you jump and land in the worlds that you land in. And you can move quickly between worlds very rapidly. And in that rapid movement, uh, you know, there is a, 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 frenzy is not the right word, but from the outside, there's a lot of movement. And that's, uh, you know, using the phrase bipolar, I, I really want to back away from that to say there are highs, there are lows, but you move quickly enough that you don't have to stay uh, in one place very long without, in one sense, being able to move. And what what I would see Sam lingering longer. And again, this is not a right or wrong or a good or a bad. It's just two different ways of being in the world, some of which has come from having to deal with one another uh, and the different ways you each approach. Then adding dealing with stunningly beautiful, complex people like your mom and dad. Uh, No, parents don't factor into the story at all, Dan. (laughs) There are more than 10 pins on this bowling alley. And and shall we say, every time you throw the ball, there are new levels of splits that have hardly ever been seen. Uh, That's not narcissism. That's just the fact that you got a complex freaking world. Having hmm. to just deal with your father hmm. uh, is enough. Uh, we were at a party the other day. I was the MC, and my son spoke. Uh, and one of the first sentences he said was, I'm not as eloquent as my father. Hmm. And when he said that, you might as well have put a sword through my soul. And it was like, oh, son. That you t- uh, comparison, but how could you not? And yet, what he went on to say was staggering. I was so proud of him. And yet, even there, in a father-son relationship, to name how proud I was, it's it on the border of patronization. Yet, on the other hand, to not speak. Like, all this damn complexity. Yeah. Why can't we just get along?
0: Um, <laughs> Why can't we have a nice go- vacation, as my wife is prone to say <laughs> these days. So, you know, when you begin to
1: name things you're naming, both of you, there is this intersection of broken and beautiful. But uh, thank you, Blaine, for naming. Yeah, glory is more sticky, it's more real than the reality of sin, given that the cross really has addressed it. Now, we have to have the courage to name brokenness. But if we linger there, especially in the category of depression, then we become nothing but our symptoms. We become nothing but the biological tendencies of our own family and hereditary. Uh, it, it, there's, there's a larger world here, and that is gifting creates some level of war. And we have to enter that war and to know that in some ways, like Jeremiah and Jeremiah 27, when he rails on God, and yet says, you're my dread champion, and yet the next moment says, it would be better if I were dead. He, he's really reflecting something of the reality of what it means to live in a fallen world, yet the larger word is death does not get the last freaking word.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that the resurrection is an assault against all forms of despair, biological and not. So, you know, it's the tension. Can you live in tension? Can you live in the tension between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? Can you live in the tension of your body and what it's experiencing in any one moment? And I don't think we train people to hold tension well, to honor it, to name it, and to have, in some deep sense, the conviction you cannot escape the
0: already and not yet. That's the core tension that depression revolves around. That's good. When I finish up my stories chapter around depression in college, a few things I walked away with. One was that medication, though stigmatized, um, was super helpful. I've said it before in the podcast. I think meds, they were, I I treated it like a cast for the mind, much like I would treat a cast for the arm. It is meant to help re- integrate it's meant to help these pathways and it's meant in my case to be temporary i think we're all we all want full wholeness and wellness and and there's varying degrees of that on this side of heaven and yet i also wanted to i had some good advice from different channels of trying to think of myself as the multifaceted being a mind that i am body that i am spirit that i am heart and pursue healing and all of those things so, as I began tapering out from this identity of being the mentally handicapped friend for being the depressed person um, to being someone who battles it, I began to rigorously try and maintain my own internal emotions. And I actually had a chapter there where I just set the governors on myself because i didn't I didn't trust myself. I wouldn't experience extreme joy because I was afraid of that becoming this this cycle that would then pull me down to extreme pain and sorrow and so I, I rather than feeling things 100 positive and 100 negative i think i was between 5 and 5 which is a pretty horrible place to try and live and wasn't wasn't sustainable that was more of that like malaise type depression so it was like hey i'm off meds and i'm i'm saving myself from feeling really bad by not feeling okay this isn't what i was wanting and these days I have, I have a posture towards depression of, I, I do things for my health and my sanity in lieu of taking meds these days. Like I need physical exercise. I need sunlight. Food is medicine. And being able to experience extreme joys and extreme sorrow, I didn't cry for like 10 years. And that wasn't a success that's not where I want to end up. That that wasn't a victory. That was a limitation. And when that dam got broken down, the tears had built up and they came on and were needed desperately. I I entered a season of of a lot of grieving and a lot of loss. I mean, I was just a few years away from having a miscarriage by the time I had broken that dam. And so I've entered a season where I need access to those things and the lessons I have learned for people that are either side by side with me in this season, and they're walking through depression um or they're they're younger, a handful of them, and then we can respond and pivot um, Depression is extremely isolating and is actually marriage was a way out for me in, in terms of that relationship. But I know many marriages where it's, it's a really, it's the problem. It's the pain point. It's the, it's, it's isolating within the marriage. And and that, uh, that, that is a weight and a battle that I am grateful I don't have to fight and want to partner with those who do. Um, but I've also walked away with this, um, I don't know when I can take it seriously. I don't know when I can look at someone and go, are you truly depressed or are you just wallowing? I I don't I don't know that I figured out the tool for that, but what I have figured out is um not taking it seriously doesn't work. And I've had some friends who would use the the suicide or self-harm card as a as an attention getting technique, but um we never, and I never felt like you could just play that off and just assume that, that that's what that was. Because there's there's going to be the moment where it, it wasn't just attention seeking, and that will haunt you forever. And so there has been some some interaction since then with friends or with um, friends of friends, where if it's, hey, I'm thinking about these things. I'm thinking about an attempt on my life, um, a hundred percent seriously is the way that I have to take that. Like if you're in that space, you, and if I'm the person for that person um which I'm not always but in the few times where I have been um I've gotten the privilege of saying doesn't matter what time it is like you call me doesn't matter where you are you call me like I that's 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 the rare place I don't want to come in and try and play that role for everyone but there's been a couple of close friendships where that has been the case and uh, even that alone like that that offer to combat the isolation was something that a couple of folks have reflected back going like that helped that helped begin breaking down the walls of just how isolated I felt, that you wanted to take my weight seriously,
1: yeah, I, I, your words are so important to hear.
0: Uh,
1: I lost a very dear friend a couple years ago to suicide. And six weeks before he shot himself, we had a hard, long, And I thought profitable conversation. And one of the last things that I said was, you know, you son of a bitch, you kill yourself and don't call me. Uh, I'll kill you. And we laughed, but it's exactly what he did. He refused to call. So when I think of suicide, it's despair plus shame and with in some sense, a vengeance to make someone pay, because every suicide leaves a debris in hearts that can never be resolved. Um, Bill's death, I will never get over. I mean, even as I talk, I'm, I'm not working too hard, but I could put my head down on the table and just weep. But I'm also so angry. I mean, I believe he's in eternity, I believe he knows something of the glory and love of God. But I hope when I get to see him that uh, I'm able to just cold cock him and take that, take him down because he has just brought heartache. Yet he was severely depressed and with a good therapist and doing good biological work. But if you can hold those words, despair and shame are killers. But when you have someone that you want to make pay to some degree for the suffering you've endured, that final factor generally is there for most people who take their lives or attempt to take their lives. And all three have to be addressed. The issue of despair, depression, the issue of shame, but also the fury against a particular person or systems or just ultimately God, um, those factors uh, will free the heart to not be drawn
0: to doing harm to oneself. Super good.
2: And I'm sorry.
1: Mm,
0: Thank you.
2: Those pieces, despair, shame, and vengeance, describe it So accurately, when as I was thinking, what are are we going to talk about when we shifted this part of the conversation? This sounds stupid, but it's such a complex thing where I think of the suicides with which I've been directly acquainted, and they're so different. But the, as I was thinking, just that the shared level of like nihilistic despair, like a despair to the level of uh, when someone does not want to live, you know, I have one friend who is hard to talk about because, you know, when those of us who are very close to him share the details of the story, it's like, did you know, did he, on the day he died, choose to die that day? The answer is, no. But if you, I think it's hard to, could you more broadly apply the label of suicide? And I go, uh, yeah. Um, but the the suicide started years earlier with a level of resignation, a level of uh, fury, uh, and then just kind of building into a level of um, recklessness that was like, there is a lack of care. Um, yes. and it was new to me to put words to these things, but you know, I was last year and as an accounting intensive, I was 10 minutes in when one of the therapists went, let me ask you a question. do you think of dying? And I said, yes, often. And he said, yeah, that would be my concern with what you're describing. And then he began to lay some of these things out. And uh, it, it was an eye-opener for me because uh, what he was identifying in me was futility. I want so desperately, you know, I want love. I want security. I want there to be a way to win those things. And when I feel like I can nail it and be hated and not get anything, not get any any of the fruit that I would like in my life, when I feel like I can fail, and the story goes pretty much the same way, uh, over time, a kind of resentment begins to build. Yes. And I remember the the time with God that... I was out, I was mourning the death of my friend, but I could really tell that it was the warning to me Mm -hmm. that it was so similar. The survival strategy was so similar, the defaults were so similar. But he was just, you know, he had 10 more betrayals, he had 10 more communities that melted down. Uh he had 10 more experiences with his family where his family just took a went through a hard season and nothing he did worked. And uh he, he was further down into the same futility, into the same why doesn't anything work? But without one of the key things, you know, in, in this story in particular, was um n- never any ability to talk about the rage, never any ability to talk about the level of the despair. And I think that his two close friends, myself and one other person, as we were swapping notes after he died, we're we're just both like venting, but like, did, did he ever for more than a minute let down the walls with you? And did you ever just see how angry he was, and it was like, uh, no, and part of my rage at him is the level of, in your story, uh, some of us were right here, and it reminds your story with your friend, Dan, or it's like uh, this sense of, I'm standing right in front of you, oh, I don't know what what the choices are that you've missed. I don't know what the choice is so hard, um, but your your strategy is killing you and it's going to kill you if you don't repent, if you don't change uh, your strategy for dealing with the pretty intense suffering of your life as a person. Uh, and he couldn't.
1: And to think about how alive, caring, engaging you are, and to think that a friend could shield himself that vastly from your curious but also bold heart. You know, that's where you just go, we can't make people live. And it's not a cheap way out. But, you know, the the reality that when you combine despair and shame it's so toxic, it's almost inconceivable. But when you add that there is something in the heart of every person that wants to just shatter something, throw something against the wall, and that is indeed good, but it has to have a context to be named and engaged rather than erased or denied. And you know, every suicidal client I've worked with Uh, dear friends who have taken their lives. There's always been that element that has been foreign. The despair, yeah, they know. The shame, maybe some degree, but that desire to like, I will mark you. uh, in being so futile, life being so pointless, I will mark my world with my blood. And that vengeance is huge. Yes. And, and, and if we can just have the ability to step back and go, I, I mean, just even talking about this, I, I'm going to need, once we finish, to scream. And thankfully, I have a wife who's not adverse to me screaming and not terribly surprised. But I'm going to need, uh, I, I need to act. Uh, because this this conversation isn't just about other people. It's the reality that there are many days that I can remember where I was not actively seeking death, but I was open to dying, open to being relieved of the necessity to live. And there is an allure to death, an allure to that level of quote-unquote rest. And it can become an agreement. And one of the deep moments of my life was in breaking those agreements with death and that freedom to know that the degree you're open to facing the reality of living in a fallen world, you will suffer levels of despair. You will engage levels of shame. There will be levels of anger that at times you will not know what to do with. But can they be held with both naming but honor, but far more with this simple phrase. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Can we engage all that biologically with a good SSRI medication? That's kindness. With our own shame that we can actually open ourselves to at least a few that will join us in grief on our behalf versus accusation? Yeah, that's kindness. And the ability to know I want evil to pay. I want evil to pay with every freaking molecule of my being. And that's a rage that needs to be honored. And y'all need to scream when we finish. It's not enough. But it's at least a symbol that says, um, I want my life to do harm to evil for the losses, for the heartache. Uh,
0: And there is something so sweet about doing that with the two of you. Hmm. i I realize this conversation will probably never feel like enough, especially for the folks listening right now um but as as we do wind down in this moment i I wanna not leave people just hanging i, I though I was we are a fan of the mic drop ending episodes. this isn't the one to do that with um if you're someone who is walking through depression or is married to, or dating someone walking through depression and has resonated with what's been shared here. You've been able to drop yourself in and said, yes, that's me. I I hope that's the case. And I hope that there's been a window opened. Um, If you are someone who knows someone that is thinking of taking their own life or you are that person who is wrestling with it, um, Dan, what would you recommend for either of these um, folks?
1: Well, for the depressions I've been through, I would not have made it without Prozac. So I would say first and foremost, see your family physician or a good psychiatrist. Uh, And the way you put it, Sam, is so important. This isn't like taking an aspirin that generally works for most people. Our bodies are so different, and therefore, usually the first dosage or the first medication or the combination of medications, it is not a fine science. It has to be done through experimentation, uh, a movement, try this, try that, but eventually there will be stabilization. So you need grounding, and medication provides a deep, grounding. Second, uh, you've got to enter into what in some sense beyond the body is evoking, provoking a sense of this despair or shame or fury. And that means your story. You, You need a good story engager, a good therapist, a good friend, a good pastor. You need somebody who can enter the war, not just of the current depression, but in many ways, what preceded it is part of it and beyond it, that you need to be able to name. And you need someone who's not only thoughtful, bold, but deeply kind. So that those two factors opened the door eventually to the engagement with the reality that there is no one who wants to make more opportunistic use of your body. And despair than the Prince of Darkness. So we need to be aware that we are called in that progression, our body, our story. We've got to engage the warfare that evil intends to bring through and do to despair and depression. But start with a good antidepressant and understand a little bit more about the body and the brain, neurotransmitters, serotonin depletion. This isn't your failure. This is your body needing, as you put it well, Sam, a cast in order to restore
0: what's broken. Hmm. Yeah, super good. Um, One other piece that I would add to this, if you're someone who is afraid for someone you care about on their behalf, The war here is against isolation for that person. And you asking these questions, asking if they're considering hurting themselves, asking if they've considered killing themselves, asking if they're wrestling with depression, that isn't going to suggest anything to them. That is only going to break down the barriers of isolation and allow for them to feel seen. The risk, the other direction, is confirming the isolation. That person is never asked that question. So don't let fear that, if the person says yes, that somehow yeah. you are at fault for suggesting it. That is is just not going to be the case. I hope you have the courage to ask. Dan, thank you very much for this conversation today. Always a joy to be with you, even and perhaps especially as we plumb some of the the harder conversations.
1: Yeah, just as long as eventually the two of you Will operate therapeutically to engage my life. I, that's the that's
0: the that's the uh, other side of the coin. Yeah, perfect. I feel super equipped to do that, and just by being a witness to you, because you're wonderful.
2: I'll tie on your droppers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's getting harder. The sight issue
1: is getting much harder. So that that would be a sweet gift. <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. sighs>